0: Good evening, Lakeside. It's good to be with you in this pulpit again. It's an honor to be here opening God's Word with you. Our passage this evening is going to be from Philippians chapter 1. If you want to be turning there, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26. If you've heard me teach over the years, you've probably heard me tell a little bit about my background. When I was a teenager, around 18, 19 years of age, before the Lord really got a hold of me, I was very driven to be successful. And I used to read a lot of self-help books. Older folks here anyway, we've probably heard of some of these. Books like How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck. Books like Awaken the Giant by Anthony Robbins and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and one of my favorites, and maybe the only Christian author, See You at the Top by Zig Ziglar. All of these men were very successful men by the world standard, and as you read these books, you're going to find that there are a few things that all of these men had in common. In fact, there are books written on the subject of what all of these men had in common, The main theme that prevails is that they had a driving purpose and passion in their life. They had this all-consuming passion for what they did. They had a reason for getting out of the bed in the morning, and usually it was very early in the morning because they were eager to accomplish things. They had a focus and a mission, and they put blinders on and went after it with everything that they had. Now, I am not endorsing these books or philosophies that they teach. I use this as an example because there is a measure of truth in what they say. And I don't think we can deny that to be successful in any venture requires purpose and passion. And by that standard, in the context of ministry and the Christian life, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, one man stands out to me in that regard, and that's the man, the Apostle Paul. A case could be made that he was the most successful servant of Christ ever. He accomplished more than anyone I can think of in ministry. And I do endorse all of his books. (laughs) So as you know, after Paul was saved, he became a missionary to the Gentiles. And he made three long missionary journeys in which he planted numerous churches... Throughout the Roman Empire, he preached and gave encouragement to the early Christians wherever he went. Out of the 27 books in the New Testament, Paul is credited with writing 13 of them, almost half. He was active well up until the time he was martyred for his faith in about 64 65 AD. It is safe to say that Paul had a purpose and a passion that was unequivocally clear. It permeated everything that he did. Besides the person of Jesus Christ, there may be no better example of someone who was successful in his life's purpose, and I think we can learn so much from his example. So I've entitled this message, The Keys to Paul's Success. Again, our text is Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26. But before we get into our text, I want you to take a quiz with me. I want you to answer a question, a fill in the blank question. Those are my favorite kind. And the question is, for me to live is, and you fill in the blank. To get you started, I want to use some examples. If Michael Jordan was here, he would say to live is basketball. If Tiger Woods was here, he'd probably say to live is golf. Carrie Underwood might say to live is sing music. You all know who all these people are. That's good. You're passing. So what about you? You? How would you complete that sentence? More importantly, how would those who know you best complete that sentence? What would they write about you? What word or phrase would your spouse, your children, your co-workers, your neighbors, what would they put into the blank? What would they fill in that question about you? Would they say, he lives to golf, he lives to work, She lives for her children. She loves to shop. They love to travel. Everyone fills in the blank with something. What would people say about you? So as we go through this passage, I want us to compare our philosophy of life, our passion and purpose with the Apostle Paul's. In our text this evening, first of all, we're going to see Paul's purpose in life. We're going to see what his passion is, his driving force behind everything that he does. And then we're going to see three keys to his success. First, some context. If you read chapters 9 through 20 of Acts, you're going to find that the recordings of the missionary trips of Paul as he spreads the gospel. You're going to see it's not a pretty picture. He was beaten, jailed, robbed, ran out of town, stoned, ridiculed. And then just before being beaten to death in Jerusalem, some Roman soldiers... Intervene. They show up and they arrest him. After two years of languishing in jail, Paul eventually appeals to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. And after a violent storm and shipwreck, he arrives in Rome to go before Nero. And he's now imprisoned in Rome. He's waiting the emperor Nero's ruling on his fate. And that's where he is when he writes several of the, what we call the prison epistles in which Philippians, which we're going to look at this evening, that's where he was. He was in basically house arrest there. So some of the reasons for Paul writing this particular letter to the Philippians was to thank them for their generous gift that they had sent to him to inform them of his condition and warn them about false teachers. So in this section of the letter, we're going to look at this evening. We're going to break in as Paul is informing them of his condition and telling them not to worry about him. So let me read verses 19 through 26 of chapter 1. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. and the purpose in Paul's life, and then identify three ingredients, three keys to his success. So first, the purpose or passion in his life. As we read, I'm sure you picked up on the key verse, verse 21. It's very well known in scripture, and I know it came to mind. I heard many of you say it when you were filling in the blank. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A very important thought that we'll get to in a few minutes. But the purpose and passion of Paul's life is made a little more specific in the verse just before this one. Paul said in verse 20, just prior to making the statement to live as Christ and to die as gain, he said, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, here it is, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Paul said that his desire is to exalt, to magnify Christ in everything that he does. Paul's desire, his passion, his purpose in life was to exalt, to magnify, to lift up, to glorify, to honor Jesus Christ. And that was his single-minded purpose. If anyone wanted to write a book about success and passion and purpose, and the life of Paul would be a great example. Actually, I'm pretty sure a volume of books have been written on the life of Paul. He was so focused on his goal of exalting and magnifying the Lord that he wasn't going to let anything stop him. And I think we can safely say that he was very successful in that purpose. In Philippians chapter 3, a few pages on in your Bible, in verses 13 and 14 of this letter, Paul said, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was focused like an elite athlete on his purpose and passion in life, and that was to magnify Christ, to lift him up, to shine a light on Christ by becoming conformed to his image in all that he did. And he was very successful at it. He acknowledged it was not complete, that it was a work in progress, but he was successfully engaged in the process. And in this passage, I want to focus in on three reasons for his success. The first reason I think Paul was successful that we're told here was because he had the proper attitude. Proper attitude. How important is attitude in life? Attitude alone can determine how one's life will go. Where you go in life, how you respond to life, can greatly be determined by what kind of attitude you have. In this passage, I see three aspects of Paul's attitude that contributed to his success. The first attitude I see is confidence. Paul had confidence. Remember, Paul's in prison, and yet he says in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The word translated know is an emphatic word that denotes certainty. Paul was convinced of this, that everything that he was going through would turn out for his deliverance. Now, scholars have different views and Commentaries on what they think that exactly means to be delivered. Some think Paul is thinking that he is going to be delivered or released from prison. Others think he is referring to being freed from sin and death through his faith in Jesus Christ. Still others think he meant delivered from execution. I'm pretty sure that that is not referring to being delivered from execution because later he says, when talking about the situation, he says whether by life or death. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. What I think Paul is saying is that he knows his suffering would turn out for his good. That he would ultimately be delivered from it either now on earth, whether it be later in heaven. He had confidence that whatever happened, it would be for his well-being, his good, and God's glory. Now, please don't misunderstand me. When I talk of having confidence, I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. That's what some of those books that I mentioned might be referring to. Paul's not confident because he knows the power of having a positive attitude. He has confidence in this only because of his confidence in God. Remember, Paul's the one who wrote the famous words of Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to what? His purposes. Paul had confidence that what was happening to him now would turn out okay because God was sovereign and was in control and ultimately everything was turning out just the way God had willed it. And those self-help books I referred to earlier, many of the authors are big on the power of positive thinking, visualizing your success, having a great self-image. If you can dream it, you can achieve it type of things. Well, Paul had a lot of confidence, but his confidence was not in himself it was not in his ability to visualize a positive outcome or anything like that his confidence was in God. Later in this letter he writes in chapter 4 verse 13 I can do all things who through who through Christ who strengthens me. Paul had a confidence but it was in the sovereign omnipotent Lord not himself. The primary confidence we should all have his confidence in the Lord. Now this goes against a lot of what we hear in the world today, isn't it? We hear a lot about self-esteem and having a positive self-image and positive health, you know, a big, healthy self-esteem. Well, how did Paul feel about himself? In Ephesians 3:8, he said he was the least of all the saints. In Romans 7:8, he says, For I know nothing good dwells in me. In First Timothy one fifteen, he called himself the chief of sinners. Paul said these things about himself, yet he was not a weak, unproductive Christian because of his feelings of unworthiness. No, he had a secured and self-esteem, but it was grounded in who he was in Christ. He had confidence in himself as it pertained to being a child of God, a servant of God, who is doing the will of God by the power of God. So we too need to have confidence in God. Whatever your lot is in life, whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, you can have confidence that God is working. That it will turn out for your good and His glory. You do not have the power, the wisdom, the ability within yourself to assure that all things work out the way you desire, but God does. And we can have that confidence just like Paul did. Not only did Paul have an attitude of confidence in the Lord, he also had an attitude of not being ashamed. Look again at verse 19, the first part of verse 20. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed in anything. Not be ashamed in anything. Over, one of the attitudes that Paul had that contributed to success was an attitude to live in such a way as to not be ashamed. What is shame? Embarrassment, guilt, failure when you don't measure up. Have you ever really been ashamed? What determines what you feel shame about? In some respects, I think it is determined by what you love. You now, if you love for men to think highly of you, you'll feel ashamed when they don't. When you want to be respected and you do something to lose that respect, you are ashamed. I remember my kids when they were little being ashamed of me driving them around in our big blue station wagon. (laughs) Tells you a little bit about what they, you know, loved, what they valued. Paul did not want to feel the shame of failing to live up to his goal, his purpose, his passion in life. He did not want to disappoint or displease God. He wanted passionately to glorify God, to lift Him up. He did not want to fail in that purpose. He didn't want to feel the shame of that. He didn't want to shame the name of Christ. So if shame is embarrassment, guilt, or failure of not measuring up, then the opposite might be honor and glory. But Paul was unusual, and all Christians should be so unusual. For us, we do not want to be ashamed of our spouse or our kids or ourselves. We want to take pride in these things. For Paul, the opposite of shame was not that he be honored, but that Christ be honored. If you look again at the verse, you will see that he wanted to glorify and exalt Christ. He said his desire was that he do nothing to hinder that. He says, I will not be all ashamed, but with the courage as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He wants Christ to be honored. We've seen... Two attitudes that contribute to Paul's success an attitude of confidence in God, an attitude of being unashamed, and thirdly, an attitude of courage. Paul was courageous. Look at verse 20 again. That I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage. Some versions say boldness. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Paul was confident. That he was doing God's will. And therefore he was unashamed. He was not embarrassed to go against everything the world around him was doing and saying. And this took great courage. Sometimes when I think about the Apostle Paul's life. I think of it as a gauntlet. It's like he just went from one beating to another. One obstacle to another. And he just couldn't escape it. And yet he continued on. He never quit. He had great courage. Even knowing he was running into danger. Paul desired and displayed an attitude of courage throughout his ministry up until his eventual martyrdom. And I could go to many passages that display the life of courage that Paul demonstrated, but I'm not going to take the time to do that. I think you're all very well aware of those. We know how many times he was beaten, stoned, thrown in prison, and he never backed down, even when his life was threatened. We have no trouble spotting the attitude of courage in Paul's life, but the question is, what about ours? We may not be in situations like Victor and Benin, who recently was attacked and had poison thrown in his eyes and has looming death threats over him and his family. Several of our own members, Mike Schott and Adam Alonzo, just recently returned from there and it takes courage to make those trips to such a dangerous place. Others, Joe, uh, Trophomug, John D'Amico, travel there. Takes courage. Pastor Jack just recently returned from Haiti where gangs have taken over all the gas stations and many roads are blocked. Not only do those taking these trips need to have courage, their wives and families have to have courage. They have to be willing to let their spouses go into these dangerous situations and turn to God for protection. But for most of us, we don't encounter that type of need for courage, but we still need courage. Many of you have unbelieving family. Do you have the courage to stand up to your parents, to your children? Do we have the courage to stand up to our friends and our co-workers? Do we have the courage to defend our faith in these, these times? Do we have the courage to stand up at work? Many of you have unbelieving bosses and co-workers. Do you have courage to defend your faith when, that, when you are attacked? Paul did not lack courage, and neither should we. I believe in the coming days in our country that we're going to have more and more opportunities to display courage as our society becomes more and more hostile to our faith. One of the reasons Paul was successful was because he had the proper attitude. He had an attitude of confidence, an attitude of being unashamed, and he had an attitude of courage and boldness. There's a second reason for Paul's success. He was successful also because he has the proper support. You are familiar with the saying, behind every great man is a great woman. A lot of truth in that. And you could go on to say that behind every great business, every great ministry, every great sports team, every great organization, there is a great support network. And so it is in any endeavor. Nothing really great and successful usually happens in isolation. There's usually a support network behind all of that. And Paul's ministry success is no different. He has a great support network. And one of the main ways that he was supported was by his brothers and sisters praying for him. He had prayer support. Look again at verse 19. Paul said he knew, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance. How? Through your prayers. We know that the apostle believed in the sovereignty of God. And that is why he had the confidence that everything would turn out okay. But God's purposes would be carried out. Then why did he covet prayers? Why were prayers so important? Because Paul also knew that God's sovereign plan incorporates the prayers of his people. That God works out his plans by answering prayers. As I thought about this, I'm always reminded of James 5:16 6, that says the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's always the danger that those who believe in the sovereignty of God can sometimes become apathetic to prayer because we believe that God is going to work out his will no matter how we pray. That's not scriptural. God is sovereign even in election. He could save anyone he wants in any manner he wants and how ever he wants to do it, but he chose to do it how through other men and women as they share the gospel. In the same way, he providentially does his will by answering the prayers of men and women today. Paul knew this, and so he was a man of prayer, and he always encouraged others to pray for him. Let me read a few verses of Paul from 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. Paul said, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is just one example of Paul requesting prayer. There are, very, there are a whole lot. And here, according to Paul, he gives the credit for the favorable outcome to their prayers. They were helpful to him, he said. Have you ever felt the prayers of God's people? I remember when I was going through chemo treatments 12 years ago, I was... Never really a big fan of Facebook. But Terry kept updating what was going on with me on her Facebook page. And many friends from not just here but from back in Kentucky were responding and praying for me. And I was greatly encouraged by the fact that so many people were praying for me. And I contribute the fact that I was never afraid. I was never discouraged. I went through that process with retaining my joy of the Lord the whole time. And I contribute that to the people that were praying for me. It was an answer to prayer. I had complete peace. The fact that the great apostle Paul desired prayer should encourage us to pray for each other, and especially for our fellow believers who are in ministry. We should strive to keep up with their needs and prayer concerns and constantly be lifting them up before the Lord. Paul had the support of the Philippians' prayers, but just as importantly, he also had, and maybe more importantly, he had the support of the Holy Spirit verse 19 again says for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ this will turn out for my deliverance Paul had supernatural help the word translated help can also be translated provision it describes a full supply everything that you might need the Holy Spirit is the believer's resource for everything that we might need so what are some of those provisions of the Spirit? What does the Spirit provide for us? Just a quick few examples. Matthew 10, 19, and 20. The Spirit provides guidance. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. In Romans 8, 26, we're told the Spirit helps us in our prayers. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not even know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The whole book of Acts tells of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a one right after another account of the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of those disciples as he spread the gospel. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 lists the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These fruits are provided, made possible by God's Spirit. And these are just a few of the provisions of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, and 17 tells us that God sends us a helper and the world cannot receive this help. In the world of self-help books and motivational speakers, they can give you some worldly advice on how to succeed in terms of what the world calls success. And some of it's good advice, but there is a help for believers that the world cannot receive nor understand. There is a power that leads to our success as believers that they do not possess. The prayers of other believers and the help of the Holy Spirit ensure our spiritual success. When we are traveling the road of God's will and His purposes, we can be successful because we have supernatural help. We might not be, have the ability to be a professional athlete or the intelligence to be a brain surgeon or we may not ever be a wealthy businessman, but we have the ability to be what God has designed us to be. For what He wills, He equips He empowers us. In the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can be a great success in our endeavors to magnify and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was successful because he had the proper attitude and he had the proper support. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, he was successful because he had the proper perspective of life and death. Let me read verses 21 through 26 again. Paul said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You know, one thing that uh, all of us have in common is that we're all going to live and we're all going to die, unless the Lord come back first. But you know, some people dread death, I was walking in my community one morning and I passed a neighbor and I uttered a common greeting. I said, good morning. How are you doing? You know, their answer was, I'm, I'm great. I got up. I'm on this side of the earth today. And I got, you know, thinking to him, you know, I didn't really know what to say. I said, "Well, that's good. (laughs) And it kind of baffled me. I wasn't really sure what to say. And then he said, it's better than the alternative. And you've probably heard lines like this. You may have even said something like that before. That was not Paul's thought on the subject, was it? Paul was not afraid to die. Death to him was not a threat. I read a quote where the author said that death is a threat to the degree that it frustrates our goals. What he meant was that death threatens to rob you of what you value. We are sometimes scared of death because it will separate us from what we love, who we love, or what we love to do. Paul valued Christ more than anything. He didn't see death as a frustration. He saw it as another opportunity to magnify Christ. So in some ways, he was indifferent to which one the Lord gave him. That's why he could say to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul understood about eternity. And he didn't just stop there. He wasn't truly impartial on the choice of living or dying. Actually, he said to die would be better, didn't he? Verse 23. That is an amazing statement. Think about that for a minute. To die is better. Now make that personal. Better than being married to my spouse. To die is better than watching my children grow up and getting married. To die is better than hugging my beautiful grandchildren. Better than being successful at work. Better than taking a great vacation. Yes. 10,000 times better if we really understand it. One of the reasons Paul was so successful in his ministry was that he had a proper perspective on dying and spending eternity with the Lord. I'm convinced, and you've heard me say it before, that I think we would all live differently if we could really get a grasp on how temporal life on earth is versus eternity with God. If we could ever really get a real grasp on how temporal this life is versus the infinity of eternity, most people don't give death little thought. They just push it aside. They don't want to think about it. Their focus is primarily on the here and now. Paul didn't live like that. Paul understood that our time here was short compared to eternity and he lived his life in light of that truth. Life is short. We need to live like we understand that. Now for some it's really short as we all well know. Some of it could end this year, this month, this day. Are you living for this life or are you living in light of eternity? For a Christian... We should never have the attitude that we're afraid or don't desire to die and be eternally with God. I know it's hard to live like that. I struggle with it too. But we need to fight that temptation. We need to have the proper perspective on life and death. Paul had the proper perspective, but he didn't just say, Lord, take me on home, did he? He said in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24 says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He realized that God was not done with him yet. He had more work to do. Hence, to live is Christ. So I ask you, do you fear death? You shouldn't if you're a Christian. Death is just a vehicle that carries us home. Many years ago, perhaps 70 years ago, the great southern evangelist John R. Rice preached in a little small town just south of Dallas, Texas. It was his custom, Dr. Rice preached really hard. He was an old traditional preacher, fire and brimstone, and he was preaching really hard against sin, especially against the bootleggers bringing illegal liquor into the small town in Texas. Eventually, the powers and those in power of the town, they decided this pesky little evangelist must be silenced. And they sent him a message to stop preaching or they would kill him. And You know what his response was? He said, you can't threaten me with heaven. I like that. You can't threaten me with heaven. Death is not something to dread, but something wonderfully better than this life. And there's a great truth to remember here. You will not die. You cannot die until the appointed time that God has ordained for you. I know that's sometimes difficult, especially when it's a young person or a child. But if they are a believer, that young person... That child has completed the life God intended for them. God makes no mistakes. And Paul confirms here that in some ways he would rather depart, but God has other plans for him. His purpose on earth is not done yet. The best example of this was in our Lord's own life. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate in John 19, 8 through 11. Pilate was baffled by Jesus' responses. And he said to him, Don't you know that I have the power of life and death over you? And that's in my hands. And Jesus said, You don't have any power at all if it was not granted to you from God. Later in John 19, Jesus on the cross lifted up his eyes towards heaven and said, It is finished. And then he died. It is finished meant that the work that God had given him to do was done. Paul was one of the most successful men who ever lived. His accomplishments are too many to list. He was successful because he had the proper attitude. He was confident not in himself but in the all-powerful God. He did not want to displease God. He didn't want to shame Him. His desire was to be unashamed as he sought to honor Christ... And above all else, he was bold and courageous, fearless. He had the proper attitude. He also had the proper support. He knew the power of prayer. He prayed and he encouraged others to pray. Paul enlisted the help of the Holy Spirit. He knew that he could not do anything in his own power, but with the Spirit's help, he could do, could do and would do everything that God had planned for him. And probably last but not least, Paul had the proper perspective on life and death. To live as Christ. To die as gain. To live is Christ. Everything I do is about serving, magnifying, glorifying Christ. But when God is through with me here on earth, to die is gain. To die is better. What awaits after this mortal, temporal life is over is so much better. We can only imagine. It sounds like a song, doesn't it? We can only imagine what it's going to be like. But for one to be able to say to die is gain, one has to be able to say to live is Christ. If you haven't come to the place where Christ is everything to you, you won't be able to say to die is gain. If you are still consumed with this life, if that's your focus, if you love this life, then you will fear death. You won't want this life to end. If that is you, then you need to repent, to reach out to the Lord for salvation. He's the only one who can grant you a life that looks forward to death, but also gives you a purpose for living. And if you are a believer who puts too much emphasis on this life, Then I plead with you to recommit yourself to putting Christ first in your life. Let everything else take a back seat to the desire to glorify and honor and lift Him up. The irony is that when you do that, that will bring you more joy than you can imagine. Verse 25 says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul says that the reason God will allow him to continue to minister a little longer to the Philippians is for their progress and for their joy in the faith. The more we progress in our faith, the more we pursue the goal of magnifying and lifting up Christ in everything that we do, the more joy we will have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example the Apostle Paul set for us. Help us to not follow the world's definition of success, but help us to follow Paul in pursuing his goal of honoring and glorifying you. Help us, Father, to have confidence in you and not ourselves. Help us to seek to please you in all that we do so that we will not be ashamed. Help us to have boldness and courage to stand against the world and its humanistic philosophies, to stand firmly even when attacked by those who hate you, no matter what the cost. Father, help us to pray for each other, to lift each other up. We will praise and thank you as you answer our prayers. Thank you, Father, for the help and the provision you bring to us through your Holy Spirit. You provide everything we need to be successful in our Christian walk by enabling power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. And Father, help us to have a proper perspective on life, that this life is just a vapor, a brief moment in light of eternity. Help us to reflect that truth in the way we live and may the way we live draw other men and women to you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.